one of the reasons I love that, and I love people who both work in secular, we'll call it that, non-Jesus-y environments uh, or start businesses uh, versus just church life. The reason I love that is because the world is full of people who are perishing, and many of us don't care. We don't care. Uh, And we may not say, hey, I don't really care, but we actually demonstrate that we don't care because we don't know one person who doesn't know the Lord. We have no friend that we check up on who doesn't know the Lord. We, have, we pray for nobody in our lives who don't know the Lord. We don't move toward people who don't know the Lord. In fact, unbelievers just annoy us much more than they give us hope that God is moving. And you know what? We also, as a church, have gotten a bad rap that, we, no, it's, it's a, it's, it's, we deserve it. You know what? We deserve to sometimes be called the things that unbelievers would call us. They call us oppressive, intolerant, unloving, judgmental. We, we told these things kind of culturally about what church life is like. And I think it is because the way we promote who we are and the things that we might post on social media and the ways we communicate about life always communicate the, the stupidest, most minority parts of what really matters in following Jesus, which is new life. You get new life freedom from your sin. You don't have to live in bondage to anything anymore. The Lord Jesus is your leader, your master. That is good news. It is good news to be forgiven. But we just often don't care. We don't care. We even have jokes, you know, we, we, we hear jokes, uh, those too caught up in soteriology are often called the frozen chosen, where you believe that, you know, God's going to save an allotment, and, you know, he's sovereign, and he has election, and election is something we hold to here, and so somehow that removes any zeal or desire for evangelism, as if you know what God's going to do or who God's going to save. Like, it, it really is the most ridiculous opposite position to hold because you're putting yourself in the place of God to assume you know the people that he's drawing to himself and you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. Sometimes you might be like praying for somebody to come to the Lord for 10 years and then all of a sudden you have one conversation with your coworker and they come to the Lord. You're like, well, I missed that one. You know, like, like didn't, didn't know that was happening. We don't know what God is doing. We should never put ourselves in the place of God. Others just view themselves as non-evangelists. Not, are there any non-evangelists in the room? Because that's certainly me. Anybody else who just goes, I don't think I have the gift of evangelism. It's okay. Like, this is a safe place. Yeah, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You're not, don't be afraid to raise your hand. Okay, so I'm going to say something. About four of us raised our hands. I'm going to tell you, we don't have a conversion rate of 70 strong evangelists in this church. So let's try this one. Anybody a liar? That, uh, that, yeah, yeah, let's, let, let's do that one a little more. Come on, guys. Like, it's like, it's not, you don't have to feel bad to say evangelism isn't my gift. You should feel convicted if you say evangelism isn't my gift, nor is it my responsibility. Those two things shouldn't fit together, but they often do. I mean, I'll even have people say to me, like, I think the church focuses too much on evangelism. I'm like, I get, I get why you could say that, but that's not the case here. Like, we don't look at evangelism as the finish line for somebody. Jesus gave us a great commission to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. If you take our member class, I'll talk about that as the work of evangelism because it ends with identification with Jesus. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the work of discipleship. That together makes up disciple making. We cannot be unevangelistic. You cannot be a gifted evangelist. That's fine. But you can't neglect evangelism because of it. But we like to do all those things. Because again, the world's full of people who are perishing and very often we don't seem to care. The longer you live in church life, the more often this can show up. Or you just go, I don't have any unbelieving friends. I'm like, do you have a family? I, I bet you could find one. One person in your extended family who just start there. Do you live somewhere? I don't, you don't even have to live in a house, like an apartment. You could, you could live in a tent and you will have an unsaved neighbor. Like, it, like you, you have people in your life, you're like, Lord, well, my neighbor goes to this church. We all know that doesn't mean a thing. You go here. Like, like, like that, doesn't, that doesn't make you a disciple. A church attendance is not disciple making. It is not discipleship. And so we have all of these things that we think about. And I think part of it, and one of the reasons we're doing this series, is because we just need to have a better understanding of what God has called us into from the beginning. That's what this series has been about. We started in week one with God's design. We create, he's created us in his image. And as people created in God's image, we have been blessed to fill the world with people who are his image bearers. And in a pre-fallen, before sin declaration, they are filling the world with a care and a, a, a ruling and a reigning that is fully good. That's what God has created us to do. That's why I get excited about Matt wanting to start a coffee shop. Yes, do that. Bring order, right? There was a house there, and that house was going to be a storefront of some kind. And through many weeks and months of work, it became a coffee shop. But that coffee shop needs employees, and it needs product. All of these things start coming together to create what you've seen. This is what it means to be made in God's image to be bringing about these types of things in the world, to be culture creators. This is all a part of being made in God's image, but, Sermon 2, sin has ruined our effectiveness at that. Because now we do it for us. We create for us, we gain for us, we live for us. So now we start businesses to get rich, and we'll even cheat in our businesses so that we can hold on to a little more for ourselves. We're always afraid to be generous and to give because we don't know what's going to happen and we live in fear of what might happen. And so we hoard, which is wholly ungodly because it's not from faith. We don't want to actually share Christ with people because we are selfish. We need me time. We need downtime. Like if I weren't working so hard I would, I would share Christ with more people or I'd pray for more people who didn't know the Lord. But I just, I just, when I get home at the end of the day, I just don't have energy to care for anybody. We need to put our feet up a little more. Now, because of sin, culture creating is, is all for our own gain. We do it for us. We're, like, we're, we're just like the people at the Tower of Babel. Let's build something and let's make a name. That's what we do. We just want to make names for ourselves. Even pastors, and this is just the most ridiculous thing to be like, <clears throat> 
like pastors even at times want to like, they want to build a platform. They want to build a platform so they can be an influencer. They can, they can tweet stuff or put stuff on Instagram that people want to have to hear and respond to. And I'm just like, who are you pastoring, the internet? Like, like that doesn't make any sense to me. And so even, even pastors and ministry leaders fall into this like, well, I got to make things about me. I got I to gotta market right. I got to communicate rightly. I got to do all these things to, you know, promote Jesus because why? Like he needs our help? Like, do you really think Jesus is going to be aided in some way by uh, our pizzazz? He's like, oh, thank you so much. Like the other church down the road, like, it is, is not, it's not communicating me in a cool way. God fixes that problem by sending Jesus, the Son, to bring us into that right relationship, to restore us to what we were supposed to do. This whole story ends in a new earth where God is with his people and the world is perfect and sin is banished. And now we're there forever doing the things we were supposed to do all along but having to be made right by God. Last week we talked about how, how God moves first toward us to communicate the message that we are in sin and we have need. We actually looked at many different references as to how God has always been the mover. God has always communicated to people about where they are. But not only that, he has been clear. We end this series talking about the church. This is my favorite subject. This is my favorite subject in all the world. When I was in seminary round one, I uh, got connected to one of my professors. His name is Mike Spiegel. Shout out to Dr. Spiegel. Uh, he's never going to hear this, so whatever. Um, and I took ecclesiology with him. Actually, uh, at my seminary, you take sanctification and ecclesiology because it's kind of a two-parter class. That's one class. I took it with him, and I just fell in love with, with the church. I, and I think even, up, even as a seminary student, I just had a faulty view on what church life really was. I'd always attended since coming to faith, but like I, I really didn't have a, a view on what it was or what membership really was, what it meant to participate in church life, and I just started to get this deep affection for the church in seminary, right? You're supposed to probably have that beforehand, but that's, not, that's never how it works. I mean, people come to faith in seminary, like, oh, actually, I, never, I never believed that. And so, so we, have, we have the church and the church is the way God is continuing to restore people. It's the way God is moving and God is working. It's us, which, I, as I said last week, I just find is ridiculous. Like, why use us? Why use coffee shop Matt? Like, why use me? Why use you? And the little paltry things that we do. And just how, I mean, anybody here, because I know we were liars that first thing with evangelism, but does anybody here ever feel insignificant? Like, like, like yeah, yeah, anybody? Yeah, okay, again, more liars. Like, three people feel insignificant. The rest of you are totally confident. Yeah, it's, it's a, these, are, these can be interactive. I don't just talk at you. And, and, and yet, this is the way that God has chosen sovereignly to use us to declare a message to bring 
people into a right relationship with God so that they can continue to do what God originally created us to do. Men and women in a right relationship, bringing God's benevolent care and rule and reign into all corners of this earth. And we do it until the Lord returns and it's finally made right. A while back in our Theology of Missions document, we wrote it like this. Uh, The local church is God's strategy to fulfill God's mandate, God's design. We said this, gospel expansion has happened through obedient local churches. Early missionary methods focus on establishing and strengthening churches. Every Christian has the great commission, and every church should have a role in fulfilling God's mandate with the time, resources, geography, and skills they have been given. Thus, we, Genesis, we recognize that we have responsibility in identifying, commissioning, and caring for those who are sent out from us to proclaim this gospel message to those who have not heard it. The series is called Sent and Senders, that both of these things matter, and that we are actually both as a church. We are people who are senders. We send people out to go and do work, but in the same way that we would send Matt to go bless a corner of Tomball and hopefully others, Uh, We also send people, we want to send people to the ends of the earth. And they might go and start a business. They might go and create a space where they are employing locals so that an indigenous church can begin. We have a role to send, and we are also sent. Earlier in January, we preached from Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3, so I'm not doing that one again. Jennifer read for us Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, we actually get a little synopsis of being both sent and sender in those few verses, verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. You actually get to see the cooperation of local, a local church and a <clears throat> changed man who wants the gospel to go into every nook and cranny of the known world. It's a conversation between Paul and the Colossians. And before we dive into that, I want to just give you, because we use the word church a lot, I want to give you a definition. Give me just a moment. Have you ever tried to define the church? Have you ever tried it? Most of us, when we try to define things, realize we never have. Like, what does it mean to be whatever? Even, even like, even, you know, the government tries to define things, like they try to define, like, male and female. And it's like, Whoa, like, what about this? Like, like, once you try to define something, you go, golly, I'm putting stuff down on, like, I'm not sure I can get there. So I, I give these challenges at different times in different ways. I go, hey, you, I say this in my class. You have to define the church in 30 words or less. This is actually more than 30 words, but teachers can take those kinds of liberties. Uh, but you, we, could, we could take some words out and get it to 30. I wrote this uh, six years ago. Six years ago, Friday, actually, I wrote this because it was part of my comprehensive examination on the church, and I needed to provide a definition. So this is the Hans definition, which is really just the conglomeration of other people's definitions because you, you, know, you, can't, you can't get too off base. Here we go. What is the church? It's the people of God living under the new covenant, not just any people of God, the people of God living under the new covenant, who are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized with his Holy Spirit, and empowered to claim Christ to the world. 
I'm not talking about, in that definition, I'm not talking about, well, what structures are there? And, right, there'll be uh, different kinds of leaders. Well, it's where the gospel is preached. It's where the sacraments are done. It's where there's leadership. I'm not talking about when you see a church, what exists within a church. I'm just trying to, a broad level, define what is a church. Fundamentally, a church is the people of God who live under the new covenant. Why the new covenant? Because it is the mark of the church, the sending of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came. And if you read Acts 2, 42 through 47, that is the first time in any part of the history of God's people that you will see that type of life being demonstrated. It's a life that is empowered fully by the Holy Spirit. It's people who are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because now he's known His name is known. Baptized with his Holy Spirit, and by that I mean identified. I don't mean baptized in the Holy Spirit, as some churches might say, but we are marked by God's Spirit in this new covenant, and because of that, we are empowered to proclaim Christ to the world. Church is not a holy huddle, is it? The church is not just a whole bunch of people who get together and talk about what's wrong with everything going on out there. In fact, if you just surveyed Paul's letters and you tried to figure out how he viewed what's going on out there, you would get a rather weird view of things. Because Romans chapter 1, he talks about a lot of, like, just a lot of junk that exists in sin. But then he'll talk about outsiders with this tenderness. And he'll say, I don't want... He'll, he'll, He'll say, be harsh with believers who are living in sin, but you can't separate from the world. It's impossible. You would not be able to be with anybody if you couldn't be around sin. Just if people are unrepentant, that, that is a time of discipline. So, what is the church? Now as we get into Colossians, I want to get us, I'm going to read a paragraph from Dan Wallace, who's a Greek, he's, he's an incredibly gifted Greek man. That's what I call him, the incredibly gifted Greek man. Uh, recently retired, spending the bulk of his life now, and has been doing this for some time, documenting New Testament Greek manuscripts. He takes high-resolution photographs of Greek manuscripts that are hundreds of years old, if not you know, over a thousand years old, so that he can preserve the languages and help future generations better understand what is within the scriptures. That's what, the, that's what he does in his free time. <laughs> help us understand Greek better. So as he wrote about the book of Colossians, the reason I'm going to four is because we're starting toward the end, and there's a lot that goes on in the front end of Colossians that helps us understand why four shows up where it does. But this is what Dan Wallace writes. Paul outlines three areas in which Christ's sufficiency, which is the beginning of the book, does enable and should motivate believers to grow in grace. Although Paul packages this entire section with imperatives, beneath the surface is the fact of Christ's sufficiency for sanctification, or else the commands would be irrelevant. First, his sufficiency enables believers to grow individually, that is, in relation to the flesh. That's in chapter 3. This is because believers have already put off the old man and have put on the new man. Thus, their battle against sin is rooted in their changed nature, a direct result of the sufficiency of Christ applied. Two, Christ's sufficiency enables believers to act responsibly in the extended home. Wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands should love their wives. Children should obey their parents. Fathers should not embitter their children. Slaves should obey their masters. And masters should take care of their slaves properly. 
That's the next run into the beginning of chapter 4. Third, Christ's efficiency enables us believers to focus on the needs of others. Thus, they are required to be devoted to prayer for Paul and his companions, especially that they may gain an opportunity in their evangelistic efforts, and believers should themselves make the most of their opportunities in sharing their faith. So that's where we're getting toward the end of chapter 4. What I actually love about the end of chapter 4 is all the people who are a part of the story, but Christ is sufficient, and many of Paul's epistles are going to do just that. They're going to kind of explain theological truth, and then they're going to apply it. So we're jumping into the applications of these things on the foundation that we recognize that this can't happen without Christ being sufficient. I can't actually live as God would have me live without first surrendering to the sacrifice of Christ for my sins. Otherwise, I'll just be striving. And it's going to eventually get exhausting. So here's where we go. That seems like a big intro, but we do all of that set up so we can talk about two things. The first thing is prayer. The first thing is prayer. Prayer is an active way to participate in God's global mission. It is not the only way. Going certainly is. But prayer is perhaps the first way that we participate in the Great Commission. Now, we're, we're very bad at shows of hands. We're going to try again. Now we know this is audience participation time. We get it. So we're going to try again. How many of you in this room have the capacity to pray? There we go. The first time we haven't lied. There we go. You have the capacity to pray. And this is what Paul says. Pray, continue steadfastly in prayer. I just love that he assumes they're already doing it. Some of us have to be like, i got to start being steadfast. Continues, that's too hard. How do you continue if you haven't started? Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So he gives an exhortation. Be steadfast, doggedly committed to prayer. Watchful and thankful. And then he actually offers a personal prayer request. Isn't that nice? He actually offers a way that he wants them to pray. Pray for us. While you're doing this, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Look at verse 4. We don't think about it like this, do we? That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Remember how we talked last week about how God is clear? You hear Paul going, Give, pray for me, pray for us, me and my prison buddies, that we would have opportunities to share the word and pray that I do it clearly as it ought to be said. This is why, as, as much as you may laugh at uh, evangelistic tools, you might think they're gimmicks. They're not. They're ways to help us understand the gospel message. I don't care if you're three circles. I don't care if you're bridge. I don't care if you're evangel cube, whatever. Like, like, like there are tools, and those tools don't save people, do they? But there are ways for us when we meet people to help communicate the fundamental facts about Jesus. So I would just say right now, if you can't articulate the gospel, you can't even personally apply verse 4. 
you can't make it clear. If the gospel is to be clear, how much attention do we actually give to being able to communicate this message? In the member class, we'll probably be doing it again in the fall, uh, we often ask, define the gospel. And this is like, I don't care if you've been in church one month, I don't care if you've been in church four years, 50 years, 10 years. If there were a dartboard this big, there would be darts that aren't on it. If you were standing a foot away, like those are the answers that we get. We always think that this is some kind of issue with like other people. This is an issue with us. We cannot often accurately communicate what the gospel is. And that does not mean, that does not mean you are a gospel scholar. I could give it to you fundamentally like this from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. At a bare minimum, there it is. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also says, according to the scriptures a couple of times. So if you want to go a level deeper into the exploded diagram, you can go, what scriptures talk about the Messiah? Which Psalms? When did, I, when did Isaiah did we talk about the Messiah? But fun, fundamentally, Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. You might go, well, what about, right? There's always the what abouts, right? The gospel's the A to Z, the gospel's this, gospel's that. But like in the, in, if you're sharing with somebody, what is it? It's the good news that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. Through faith in him, you can have life and freedom from your sins and forgiveness. Life with him forever. <clears throat> All kinds of different ways you can talk about that with anybody. <clears throat> but if you can't communicate it, because <clears throat> you, you don't know it, can't make it even clear. So we have two things here. The first exhortation, pray steadfastly, verse 2. Prayer is a mark of maturity and discipleship. It is an active way to grow in maturity with God. You actually don't get mature and then pray. You are made mature through praying. We've been spending a lot of time this year talking about prayer. We've been communicating opportunities to join in prayer. At the end of this service, I'll be giving you ways that you could be praying for things at this church. But <clears throat> there is an expectation from Paul to continue steadfastly, which means there's kind of an understanding that if churches do anything, they pray. If believers do anything, they pray. That's the first exhortation. We pray, a group of uh, brothers and sisters gathers at 6.30 right around here on Wednesday morning. 6.30 a.m. It lasts 60 minutes. That's it. 7.30, everyone skedaddles and runs to wherever they're supposed to go. If you could come at 7 and go from 7 to 7.30, that'd be fine. If you come at 6.30 and go 6.30 to 6.50 and then hit the road, that's fine. Opportunity to pray with other people. If, we, if you've never tried to pray with other people, it can be one of the most awkward things that you do. Like, more awkward than dancing the first time, for sure. Because you hear other people's prayers, you go, I don't pray like that. I wouldn't even pray like that. That sounds stupid. Then all of a sudden, you become the most judgmental person in the world in five seconds of praying. Why? Because, again, it, even doing it matures us. Where we go, golly, I'm a jerk. I don't have that heart. I don't have those desires. I don't have those burdens. I don't have those needs. There's that. Personal prayer habits. If you don't have a way you pray, and by that I mean a way to keep up with the things that you're praying for, a time that you do it. For me, one time, it was, it was the time was like, I got to give this much time at some point in time in 24 hours. That's kind of how I started. 
<clears throat> um, I had times in Baton Rouge where I would gather with some people in the morning and we'd pray for the membership of our church. Um, but then uh, now my, my times have kind of grown to kind of two times. There's like a morning and a before bed, like afternoon time. Like two dedicated times. And then other times, right? You pray with somebody, you have a conversation. But if you don't have a personal prayer habit, I would love to talk to you because I'd love to help you with that. There, I don't think there's a more effective thing that you could do to grow in the Lord than regularly read his word and have a habit of prayer. Like that's, that's, that's like a one-two punch for maturity. Corporate prayer, group prayer, all kinds of things can happen. But continue steadfastly in prayer and then the connected request is pray also that we go and that there's a door to ring this message. He's saying, pray for the man who was driven to go before Caesar. I want to go to Spain, but now he's waiting in prison. Pray for doors to open for gospel expansion. I want to ask you, do you pray for this? Do you pray for unreached places or unreached people? Do you have missionaries that you support who are ministering in certain spaces? If not, we'll give you some. The kids actually in our kids ministry now have missionary wall of Genesis-supported missionaries. And, and there's pictures of these missionaries, and our kids' ministry team will be reminding the kids on who are some people that even your giving supports at this church so that we can contribute to that. In our new budget year, we're dedicating, I think it's 11% to mission support of some kind and local outreach. 11% of our budgets. The most we have dedicated to it in any year, I think, that we, we have had. It's like, no, we need to be more generous in this direction. We need to find good partners. We need to see the work of God amongst the nations. And oddly, like, we have a, a unique relationship with multiple believers in Pakistan. Did you know that? Yeah, like, like it, it's just a, who knew, right? Here we are in spring, but just through a couple of people, like, it's just kind of this connection of multiple churches and multiple believers that we support and pray for. That's a cool little thing. So if you don't have a place to pray for, pray for Pakistan. If you need a name, we'll give you names. Pray for doors for open. Pray the message might be clear. Now that seems like a pretty, that's a cool little exhortation. Pray all the time, also pray for us. So you see right then and there that even a local church in Colossae has a way that it can participate in Paul's desire for the gospel to go to Spain. If we diminish prayer as the first move in gospel expansion, we're making a mistake. That's where we get in Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, 1 through 3, don't we see the disciples together worshiping the Lord with fasting and prayer? And that actually begins the first missionary journey, as we call it. Being together, praying, seeking the Lord, it's a part of it. Evangelism and global disciple-making starts in prayer. It starts in prayer. And moves from there. Very often we go, hey, well, you know, what is this church doing to impact the world? Isn't that a funny question? Because very often we're pretty anemic prayers for the world, but we're very serious in what our church should be doing. We've got to flip that order. Where it's in our bones to be praying for the gospel to go into every part of the world and to ask the Lord how he would use us in this. So that's what he says at first. The church's role in global evangelization, even locally, to pray, 
Pray for Paul. But that might mean we're off the hook, right? Oh, well, maybe we're off the hook if that's the case. I just pray. I'm just a prayer. Nope. That's where we get verses 5 and 6. In his thinking on the gospel going to people, he actually doesn't tell the Colossian church to go plant new churches, which is, you know, it's funny that he doesn't do that. There's just an expectation of disciple making. He doesn't go, I'm doing this and you send out another five people. He just gives them the expectation that he has for probably any local church in verses five and six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders is New Testament language for those who aren't a part of the faith. It's not like they, they can't come in. It's not like they can't see. It's not like they don't know believers. It's just people who aren't a part of the church. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, how you ought to answer each person. Christ is the wisdom of God. So if we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, then it requires, even demands, that we walk with Jesus. So I would ask you this, do you read his word? Do you read it deliberately and intentionally? Do you pray over what you read? That's so hard for us. In fact, a couple of years ago, I had to start just reminding myself to pray about something that I read so I wouldn't immediately forget it. I actually use prayer, prayer as a way to not forget. Like, that's how, that's, that's how forgetful I am. It's like, I just read it, I go to pray. It's like, pray over something you've read. I'm like, oh, Lord, what did I just read? And so I do this to just remind myself of what the scriptures say and demand of us and expect of us and who I am. I do all these things because I want to, ideally, walk in wisdom toward those who aren't a part of the church. That we live in a proper way. That we are distinct, holy, separate in a sense in how we operate because we don't move in the world's rhythms. We're not concerned about the Lord's priorities. We are concerned about the Lord's priorities. We have a different master. And so that should result in a distinct way of living. That we live for others and not for self. That we're actually more concerned about the needs of others than we are the needs of ourselves that we can speak graciously to people. Remember how last week we said, just find, pray for somebody to talk to in the month of June and just ask them questions about themselves. That was one of the challenges. Pray for somebody. Do that. Well, when you talk to somebody just about what's going on with them, you have to be gracious, interested. I mean, even if you, I could probably follow any of your text threads, and it's probably going to be you talking about yourself. And when somebody talks about you or talks about them, you're going to go, man, I'm so glad to hear that. You know we're struggling with the same thing. Like you immediately kind of flip it to you again. Like we have this, this great way to make anything that's going on about us. That isn't gracious speech. That's actually pretty selfish speech. We go, oh, no, 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 I'm just trying to relate. I'm like, well, no, you, no, you're not. You're actually just trying to talk about you. <laughs> trying to relate goes, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that struggle. Tell me more about that issue. What's going on with that? Why did it start? May your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. You know, I, I, I would be honored if all the unbelievers who are connected to this church through you, through us, if they had an excellent reputation about Genesis because of you. 
where they go, I don't know anything about that church. I don't know anything about those people, but I know Jimmy. And so the church must be great. I don't know anything about that church. I don't know anything about those people, but I know Mike. I know who that is. I know Ellen. But that's, again, just such a small part of our lives. It's not what we think about. It's not how we live. But yet Paul, I mean, the, one of the things I love about 2 through 6 here in Colossians 4 is just how matter of fact he is. Like, it's like he's not even trying to tell them to learn a new thing. He's just reminding them of how to do it. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of your time. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Make the best use of your time. Because best use of your time could mean lots of different things, couldn't it? It could be, <clears throat> hey, we're not going out tonight, we're staying in. I haven't, haven't prayed for a while, I haven't read for a while, I need to do that. It could also mean, I'm going on a walk around the neighborhood because this is the time my neighbors walk. I'm going to go out, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intentionally say hello, I'm going to engage somebody. It could be that. But you can't make the best use of time if you are not walking with the Lord. Because you have no discernment anymore. Right? The, moment that, the moment that we detach our lives, in a sense, from God's word and from prayer, we become autonomous again. And autonomy sounds great, but man, is it a brutal place to live. Because we don't know up from down or left from right. So we have to walk with the Lord so we can walk wisely. We can't walk wisely first. We have to continue in living with Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And then, when you talk about speech, gracious and seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. What I love about this is salvation is unique. It's unique. What somebody's dealing with or somebody's hurdle to understanding the Lord, their confidence in who he is, the struggle they've had, the hurt that they've had, the issues they've had, the hang-ups they've had, whatever it is, it is a unique person-to-person struggle. And Paul is, is saying, you have to be so aware of what's going on that you can answer each person. based on where they are. Remember how we talked last week about how we have to know the culture, we have to know the people, we have to know the language of where we are. This is why. That the same habits, same habits in a large macro sense that form the cross-cultural missionary should form us. Know the people, know the culture, know their stories, be able to interact with them. I was thinking about that just the other day because my family's in Louisiana and if I said to people who aren't from Baton Rouge, Dalrymple, wouldn't matter. Oh, yeah, just take a, you know, exit I-10 at Dalrymple. You'd be like, why are you telling me that? What is a Dalrymple? It is a road. It is spelled D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E. It gets you right into LSU's campus. I don't say Dalrymple here unless I'm making a sermon illustration about why I don't. Because it would have no bearing in our conversation. No bearing. You have to know how to respond to each person. Tell me about that. What's going on? Help me understand. And it doesn't mean you're an expert in everybody. But I would encourage you to be a learner of everybody. 
Who are they? What do they need? <clears throat> we started at the beginning of the year these cards called Live, Work, and Play. And we asked for you to put one name down. One name, one family. Some of you like to put 40 names down. I'm going to go back to one. It's like, here are the 35 people in my life I want you to put for each, each slot. I'm like, we're just doing one. I try to pray for these sometimes. I'm like, oh, gosh, there's the name with 40 of them. Get, get through them all. I'm trying to do like one. Like, I seriously, one guy at our church has for his live, a guy, like Bob. Every time I pray for it, I'm like, is this a joke? Like, is this a, is this a real person? He's like, just put Bob. Bob, John, Mike, like just a bunch of, bunch of like very common names. So I pray for Bob. I have no idea who Bob is. No idea. I pray for Bob. Why? Because somebody at our church is connected to Bob. Um, start small. Where do you live? What is one person, the name of one person, or the last name of one family that you can begin praying for and moving toward? Where you work, if you are a stay-at-home mom, what circles your kids run in, everybody's kids run in some kind of weird circle. Where you play, where you spend your time, where you engage, if you're a student, where you're in school is where you work. A classmate who doesn't know the Lord to be praying for a classmate. Because as we do these things, we begin to realize our identity as sent people, because you all are. That was the gospel of John. As the Father sends me, so I send you. And also as sending people who are enthusiastically looking for opportunities to see the gospel go among the nations so that Christ can be exalted, and people who have never heard him, never heard his name, can hear his name. But it takes the right mindset and obedience to live that out.